Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. So glad to have you with us for the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Now embarking on our second decade. Yesterday's podcast was a whole lot of fun, and it was also very nice to see so many nice comments on Twitter and elsewhere about how much folks uh, enjoy the podcast, that you're with us on a regular basis. And uh, Jim, it's just nice to know we've got friends out there. Twitter's usually kind of a cesspool, so to get some uh, very encouraging comments was very nice yesterday. So thanks so much to our listeners, as always. Yeah, you know, the only two conclusions I can draw, Greg, are that either all of our listeners are just nice people who are warm and appreciative and exactly the kind of people you'd want to produce a podcast for, or all the nasty ones I have muted and I just didn't hear from them. (laughs) Very grateful for all of our listeners. Glad you're pulling up a stool with us each day here at the Three Martini Lunch. And this was not planned, but uh, just to keep the good vibes going, we have three good martinis for you today. So let's uh, dive right in. And oddly enough, Jim, we're going to say something nice about the media. In particular, NBC News. Uh, it came up in the first debate uh, with President Trump and Joe Biden, uh, the question of climate change, and it was couched in the terms of uh, hurricanes and wildfires. And President Trump made the point that, uh, you know, you can talk about climate change all you want, but you also have to manage forests. And NBC actually spent some time looking into this. And while they still uh, chalk up some of it to climate change, which uh, obviously folks can debate, they also said this. For decades, federal, state, and local agencies have prioritized fire suppression over prevention, pouring billions of dollars into hiring and training firefighters, buying and maintaining firefighting equipment, and educating the public on fire safety. But as climate change continues to fuel dry conditions in the American West, Many experts say it's long past time to shift the focus back to managing healthy forests that can better withstand fire and add to a more sustainable future. Mike Rogers is a former Angeles National Forest Supervisor and board member of the National Association of Forest Service Retirees. He says fires have always been part of our ecosystem. Forest management is a lot like gardening. You have to keep the forest open and thin. And so, Jim, we've been saying this for a long time. Uh, yes, uh, you definitely uh, want to stop the wildfires, uh, especially in stupid ways like explosions at gender reveal parties. But uh, at the same time, there is a responsibility of government at all levels, because later in the report, it talks about how a lot of the land in the West is actually owned by the federal government. So it's not just the states. It's also the federal government's job to clean and thin. And yes, sometimes that means cutting down trees in order to make sure it's not a tinderbox when wildfire season comes upon us. So good on NBC for actually pointing out it's uh, it's not a climate change issue, certainly not entirely, uh, and that there's actually some human management that could make this problem less severe. You know, Greg, I see that article and I contemplate, should everyone who is on the right side of the spectrum print it out? It's a little bit of a hassle, but stay with me here. Print out the article staple it together, read it through, remember the arguments, you know, it's got good specifics in there, quotes from experts and such, and then fold it up and carry it around in either your wallet or your purse. And you're like, well, why would you do that? Why would you want to carry around one particular article from NBC News? My suggestion is that at some point, maybe not as we head into winter, but sometime in the next year or so, there will be additional wildfires. And you will find yourself talking to someone, probably of the liberal persuasion, who will say, ah, you know, can you believe that these terrible wildfires, isn't climate change terrible? 
this is all Trump's fault or this is all Republicans' fault or something like that. You say, actually, no, this is largely a forest management issue. And they'll say, oh, you're just saying that because you're a climate denier or something like that. You'll say, no, and you whip out the NBC News article. And you show them that, no, this is not some crazy right-wing conspiracy idea. This is not some... And if you don't like the NBC News article, back when the wildfires were really terrible out in California, and the sky was turning orange around San Francisco, looking like something out of Blade Runner, I had noted that actually, if you want to find really good discussion of these issues that doesn't fit this easy, you know, Democrats are good, Republicans are bad, this issue is simple, wildfires are a side effect of electing Republicans, you could actually go to ProPublica, which is a investigative journalism outfit, not conservative by any stretch of the imagination. Mother Jones had a very good article about California wildfires. And they are saying this to their readers, who I probably act on the assumption that, oh, well, you know, if there are really bad wildfires out there, it's probably a result of climate change, and it's probably the, result, the fault of, of uh, Republicans. And these detailed, lengthy articles that involve quoting all kinds of local officials, all kinds of firefighters, all kinds of foresters and people who study this for a living is actually no, I mean, yeah, maybe it's a side factor or it's a contributing factor, but in the end, you have a lot of underbrush that never gets cleared out. It turns into kindling, particularly in a drought. And all of a sudden, foosh, any lightning strike, any uh, reckless camper, any dumb gender reveal party or something like that, all of a sudden, what could be a small and manageable fire quickly turns into a massive fire. And we shouldn't have to do this. Like, we shouldn't constantly face these kinds of knee-jerk, you just don't want to acknowledge it. But unfortunately, these are the waters that we are swimming in right now, Greg, that people want to believe that the problems of the world are simple and can simply be fixed by electing the people they like. Guess what, folks? California is almost entirely Democratic-controlled government. You can find one or two you know, state, you know, state legislators, and you can find the occasional mayor or town council here. But by and large, that is a Democrat-run state. There is no Republican villain to, to demonize. You can't blame it on big corporations. You can't blame it on uh, you know, Exxon or, or, or anybody else. Like, this is a matter of having a lot of, of poor policies that were, had the best of intentions. They thought this was helping the, the natural world grow. Actually, no. What it does is it ends up creating a lot of kindling and you end up with fires that ordinarily would be bad, but now have turned into much, much worse, much more destructive. And also in part because people start moving out to these areas that are unfortunately prone to wildfires. If not every year, then, you know, once, once every five years, once a decade, once every 20 years. They're going to happen in this region because they've always happened in this region. So, Jim, what you're saying is, is that we should focus on hiring good people, smart people who actually know what they're doing. Maybe it shouldn't be necessarily who's got the funniest punchlines in a campaign, but who's actually got good policy. It's a strange concept, but maybe it'll work. Uh, you know, we, it would require completely overhauling everything about our, the way we do campaigns, though, Greg. All right. Well, let's get on to good news part two. And of course, uh, we saw just a few weeks ago, the peace deal, the Abraham Accords signed at the White House involving Israel, Bahrain, the United Arab Emirates, and of course, the U.S. facilitating. And uh, the Trump administration, various figures in the administration have talked about other nations coming on board soon. We haven't seen that yet, but uh, it's, it looks like, according to uh, research done by Zogby Research Services and reported by the Jerusalem Post, that a lot of folks in the Middle East actually want to see that happen. Listen to these numbers. Nearly 80% of Saudis are in favor of working towards normalizing ties with Israel within the next five years, with 71% even thinking it is likely that other Arab states will normalize ties without a peace deal between Israel 
and the Palestinians. Uh, again, this according to uh, Zogby, the study surveyed attitudes among Israelis and Arabs from five different countries, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Palestine, and Jordan. Obviously, they're calling Palestine a country there, but uh, 80% think that bringing the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to an end is important. Uh, a majority still believes that normalizing ties with Israel is not a good idea unless there is a deal with the Palestinians. But Jim, one of the things we've seen here is that a lot of countries in the region are tired of waiting for the Palestinians to get their act together on this. We've already got uh, two nations on board, and it looks like, uh, given these numbers, there's a huge appetite for normalcy and stability, even if the Palestinians still don't want to play ball. Indeed, Greg. Now, if you go deep, deep into the archives of National Review, and you look at right after the election of 2004, you can see an article I wrote about the polling in the election. And I rake John Zogby over the coals. Uh, he had not, did not have a good year. He had said Kerry was going to win by a wide margin. But Zogby has remained in the polling business, and I you know, have not seen him being wildly far off for this. And when you point out numbers like 80%, let's, that, that's well outside the margin of error. <laughs> when, when, you, know, you, can, you can only get four out of five do- dentists to agree on, on brushing after meals. So you're kind of wondering, okay, if you've got 80%, that's a pretty darn big consensus, particularly over a topic as traditionally, uh, let's say, incendiary in Saudi Arabian life as Israel. And when I say incendiary, I don't mean people's passions get, you know, I mean, I mean, firebombs. I mean, people really, you know, want to blow things up when it comes to the issue of uh, relations with Israel. So what's, what's happened? I am reminded of another long ago time, not quite as long ago as 2004, but I was over living in Turkey. Uh, I ran into someone who had been working with the U.S. military in the Balkans. And this is, you know, Let's say, you know, 2005 to 2007. So the U.S. bombing of Kosovo was in 99. The Balkan Wars had basically been over for five to seven years. And this guy had been over there as part of the peacekeeping units. And I said to him, boy, I bet you that place is a tinder ke- you know, a powder keg ready to explode. And uh, his response was no. No, actually, that they had, you know, they, they didn't, you know, the Serbs and the Croats and the Kosovars and the Albanians and all these different factions didn't necessarily like each other. But after nearly, you know, a good portion of the 1990s being spent in this near genocidal, brutal war, they had all suffered enough and they were just tired of it. And they were ready to now more or less peacefully coexist with uh, different ethnic neighbors when they had been shooting each other and trying to kill each other just a few years back. And I was surprised. And I said, it was really, he's like, yeah, I've, I've talked to a lot of them. They're, these people have lost a lot. They, they realized that... Um, all that fighting they did during that time period did not get them what they want, and it cost them a lot. And I was like, huh, I was surprised by that. And then I figured, okay, maybe this is true, or maybe we'll see the Balkans explode in violence again. Well, now here we are in the year 2020, and the Balkans, while not being perfect, have largely not exploded in the kind of sectarian violence we've seen in other parts of the world. So what does that tell us? It tells us that some people can get tired of fighting. And in the case of the Israelis and the Arabs, you know, look, it's been, you know, more than two generations. But I suspect what we're seeing in these numbers of these polls, Greg, makes me think that even Saudi Arabians are like, you know what? We've been doing this for a really long time. It has not helped us. It has not helped our children. It has not helped the Palestinians. We have been in this, you know, anywhere from you can characterize it as a Cold War, uh, a hostile uh, mentality, or you could say it's all the way that there have been times you've had the Six-Day War and all of that. Um, you've had oh, outright uh, conflict between the two of them. I think the Saudi people and the Saudi government as well are recognizing 
this is going nowhere. This is the, all you do when you do this is you end up with you know terror attacks, you end up with poverty, you end up with a lot of resources and, and mental energy and, and everything put towards hostility and conflict that doesn't really help anybody. So I think it's a very encouraging sign, Greg. I don't, you know, this does not mean peace between Israel and Saudi Arabia is imminent, but it says that both sides are ready to kind of, all right, let's put aside our differences, let's sit down to the negotiating table. And in the, stat, in the case of the Middle East, that would represent a huge step uh, if Saudi Arabia and, and Israeli, Israeli diplomats could even just get into a room and talk to each other for a while. Right. So we've seen a ton of progress here. And obviously, if Trump is reelected, we know the policy is going to continue in this direction. My question for you is what happens if Biden wins? We've already seen him say he's going to restore the aid that Trump has suspended to the Palestinians. Looks like he's going back to kind of the status quo ante where things stood at the end of 2016. So if Biden's going back to that status and then perhaps tries to resurrect the Iran deal, what happens to the progress we've seen here, especially in the past few weeks? Yeah, one of the few moments that was uh, semi-awakening at that last uh, town, you know, town hall meeting with Biden was a questioner asked, does Trump deserve some credit for this? And Biden said very little credit, which is, which is not really encouraging. Uh, I don't know if the Biden administration would immediately set out to blow up the existing progress between Israeli, Israel and its Arab neighbors, but I certainly don't think that they see this as a uh, major initiative that needs to be nurtured and continued and, and you know, like the idea of a passing a baton from the Trump State Department to the Biden State Department. My fear is, is as you laid out there, Greg, is that, you know, Biden believes the Iran deal was this massive success that was unfairly canceled by Trump, and he would try to put it back into place, and you'd be end up going right back where we started from. Now, the great irony is that that might actually drive the Israelis and Arabs closer together, but that would be an unintended side effect of Biden administration policy, not an intended side effect. Hey, guys, it's Mock and Daisy from the Chicks on the Right, and we're excited to tell you about our podcast, the Mock and Daisy Common Sense Cast. If you've been stressed lately with the information overload on social media or just don't feel like anything in the news makes sense anymore, don't worry, because we're here to clear things up. Every week, we discuss topics like cancel culture, national crisis, what's happening to our new generations. And if you're just plain tired of people trying to tell you what to do or how to live your life, we tackle that, too. Find out more by going to our website, chicksontheright.com, or start listening on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, or your favorite favorite podcast app. Don't forget to leave a comment or review and subscribe. All right. On to our final good martini here now. And uh, Jim, we're getting closer and closer to Amy Coney Barrett being justice, Amy Coney Barrett. And uh, Gallup is out with uh, even more updated polling. And we now have a majority of Americans who want to see her confirmed. It's 5146. So she's over the 50% mark. But Jim, only 3% of Americans have no opinion on Amy Coney Barrett, which shows you how polarized we are right now, just a couple of weeks before Election Day. If you look in in the past, uh, I mean, it's about a quarter of the public, uh, roughly, sometimes more than that, have no opinion whatsoever uh, on the Supreme Court justice, even after the confirmation hearings. If they're particularly contentious, that number generally tends to go down. Uh, But according to Gallup, 84% of Democrats Oppose the Barrett confirmation, 89% of Republicans are in favor of it, and perhaps uh, most significantly heading into election, uh, 52% of independents are in favor of it, 43% oppose. So uh, the numbers have been uh, good enough for Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, Her head has been above water in every poll I've seen, except maybe right when things were first announced. Uh, Mitch McConnell apparently has indicated to press back in Kentucky that he already has the vote. So Things seem to be headed all in the right direction here. 
Yeah, you know, this is not quite as good as the morning consult numbers that you and I talked about a bit, or Chad Benson and I talked a bit as well. Uh, but these are all, you know, not where, where Democrats wanted those numbers to be. They wanted to delegitimize her. I don't think that's really working in that situation for them in that. Um, I, again, I also feel like, you know, in addition to Barrett doing very, very well in her confirmation hearings, I feel like it didn't break through. Now, maybe the Kavanaugh hearings and the, you know, explosive accusations by uh, Blasey Ford, you know, kind of, you know, maybe, maybe that sets a bar that's very tough for any subsequent hearing to... Uh, to reach, but really, this, this was the sort of thing where you would have expected, you know, the Democrats to throw everything but the kitchen sink. I think you can argue that they did, and it really didn't didn't even make a dent in her. The New York Times has a poll number; they conducted a survey, same similar questions. They have it: forty four percent supporting Barrett's nomination, forty two percent opposed. So, you know, slightly you know lower numbers on both sides. But I think what's kind of interesting is that. 58% of voters said Democrats should not expand the court behind nine justices, which means the issue of court backing has not gone well. Support is only at 31%. Uh, and 65% of independents are opposed to enlarging the court. So Amy Comey Barrett appears to be smooth sailing to confirmation and barring some unexpected retirements or, God forbid, some passing of some justices, it is probably not likely uh, that she will be getting a whole bunch of new members, new fellow justices, uh, because you figure the Democrats would be unlikely to do this if uh, public opinion is running you know, against them, 58% to 31%. Yeah, important numbers there. So, wow, three good martinis two weeks from election day, Jim. I don't think that uh, is going to happen too often, so let's relish it today. Uh, a good day for conservatives. Enjoy them while you got them. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Uh, also, don't forget to subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast. Also, you can get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Always grateful for your kind reviews and your five-star ratings. Have a great day and join us again Wednesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.